Welcome to the Walking Lessons Podcast. Today's episode, The Beauty of Powerlessness. And now, here's Nate Larkin. We talked last week about denial, this river that we all have to cross before we can begin to take that land that God has given us and, and uh, get free <laughs> of um, all the powers that have taken possession of what God has for us, right? So we talked a lot about denial. And uh, throughout this class, I'll be referencing the 12 steps. I've told you that God has used the 12 steps in my life to teach me the gospel. It's interesting that um, the 12 steps begin with an admission. What keeps us from freedom and from recovery is denial. The first thing we have to do after crossing that river, and the way we do it, is by not denying, but admitting. If you know the 12 steps, you know that the first one is this. We admitted, that's the first word, admitted we were powerless over X, and our lives had become unmanageable. Allie and I spent uh, last week, four days last week, in New Orleans. Uh, where I learned some more about powerlessness. Uh, the food in New Orleans is amazing. Uh, I'm sure there was salad on every menu we looked at, but I didn't order any <laughs> salad. Um, and actually, uh, we Allie and I discovered this restaurant that was 53 steps from our elevator. And it was so good that we ate there twice a day. We went for a uh, 50-cent oyster on the half shell at happy hour, and then went up to the room and digested for a while, and then came back down for dinner. And it wasn't until the last day that we ventured to the French market and tasted a muffaletta for the first time. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> Unbelievable. And I've never, you know, considered myself, you know, vulnerable to food addiction, but I... I I gained five pounds in four days. Uh, all of it muscle, you know. <laughs> Doing curls with a heavily laden fork, right? Now, we were there, I was there for an, a windstorm conference, a big convention with insurance adjusters and um, contractors and attorneys and forensic engineers like us. All of us hoping desperately that this finally will be the year that a major hurricane hits the southeastern United States so that we can make money. So, uh, you know, we were there for, for, for these days. We manned a booth at the exhibit hall, which I hate. Just, I hate the whole thing. But uh, the last night, as a way to kind of get us all together, they did what they called casino night for everybody who attended. I'd never been to a casino night. I'd I'm not a big gambler. I've been to a casino three or four times. Never done anything except play, you know, put $10 in the slots. That's my, you just put your $10 in, pull the lever until it's gone, and then leave. That's what I do, right? So, uh, but, okay, so but this was casino night. And um, we all went because you're supposed to interact and connect with other people. It's a marketing thing, right? And you get there and they give you chips, $2,500 worth of chips. And they send you into the casino floor this, that they've set up. And, um, and then if you 
if you turn those chips into more chips, you trade those for tickets, and the tickets go in a lottery, and then you win stuff or something. Okay, so I went in and looked for the slot machines, and there weren't any. It was all blackjack tables and roulette and poker, and I don't know how to play any of those games. Uh, but there was a young guy who works for us. He was there with his girlfriend, and so he, he kind of took me under his wing, and he took me over to a blackjack table to teach me how to play. Now, the dealer was uh, a very majestic like, woman, probably in her 40s, and all you know, dressed up in the black vest, the white shirt, the bow tie, the thing, and she could just flow those cards from hand to hand and just deal them like liquid. It was amazing how uh, skilled she was. And you know, so I said, Bob, where did you learn to do this? She says, well, I'm a dealer. Uh, down at the Harris Casino, down at the end of Canal on the, on the river. I've been doing it for 17 years. Well, she was good. Well, it's, a, it's amazing how phenomenally awful I am at blackjack. I mean, I'm just, I'm so terrible. So this kid was trying to teach me, and he's, I'm just losing everything. And after a while, you know, my feet are already hurt, and I'm uncomfortable. I don't like this place. I'm ready to lose all my chips and go back to the hotel to get Allie. She'd stayed back at the room because uh, we'd been walking all day around the quarter, and, and I figured well, I'd go back to the hotel and we'd go to dinner. That's what I just wanted to get out of there. Well, the dealer thought it was, she thought it was kind of funny, I guess, and she felt sorry for me. So as I was about to run out of chips, she started cheating for me. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, even when that didn't work, she would just pretend that I had won when I didn't, right? And she starts stacking me. Pretty soon I got this big stack of chips, and I haven't had a winning hand in forever. And eventually I just, I just got tired, and I gave all my chips to the kid. And meanwhile, he's coaching, he's explaining to his girlfriend his system for winning at Blackjack. And he's got a system. It was about at that point that, um, that I asked the dealer, I said, do you actually, do you ever play this game? And she looked at me and she said, are you kidding? No. She said, in 17 years, I've never been on that side of the table. And I left kind of wondering as I got out the door, I wonder, I wonder why. Is it because she knows the house always wins? Is it because she knows if she ever starts, she'll never stop? Is it because in 17 years, she's seen an awful lot of people do an awful lot of stupid things, who are powerless, who can't stop. I don't know why, but it kind of haunted me as I left. And at the same time, it was, it was instructive to me. I mean, this is a woman who knew not to go there, and she just never did. The weekend before, uh, last, last weekend, right before I taught this class, and. Uh, right after, yeah, last weekend, right before I taught this class, and then we drove to New Orleans. I, I led a men's retreat up in Missouri. And I do this often, two, three times a month, usually. And it might be 50, 60 guys. It might be a few hundred guys, occasionally bigger than that. This was a, a crowd of maybe 75, 100 guys. Some nice Presbyterian brothers, you know. And I had them for Friday night and Saturday. And I, um, and I talked about what I always talk about. We talk about the gospel, and we talk about the gospel in the context of addiction, and then I, I always open with my story. 
mainly because I want to make it safe for other guys to tell their stories. And mine's bad enough that most every guys can, well, you know, once I make it safe, they'll, they'll, they'll confide maybe. If they're holding a hard story, they'll confide it in somebody else. At least that's my hope. And then I definitely try to make the point that, artic, that addicts share an inner architecture, that sex addiction is really no different from any other addiction, and that we all need the gospel. And God uses addiction you know, to lead us, to reveal to us our need for the gospel, bring us to the end of ourselves so that we can find freedom in surrender. That's my basic message wherever I go. And it's a fun thing to do actually. I, I love pumping oxygen into a room, especially if it's a, like a really legalistic church or a church that never talks about sin except in the most condemning and shameful terms where you always have to talk in code and when there's a lot of pretense going on. And I can come in and just speak frankly and, and starkly and baldly about life's realities and talk about my own stuff without shame and talk about the gospel. It's great. It's a joy and a privilege to do. And I love watching people move toward it. Now, they don't always move toward it. Sometimes shame is so great that, uh, that, that, that fellows just kind of insulate themselves from the message. The message seems too good to be true. Um, and, their, and their habit of self-hatred, self-condemnation, and their determination to somehow gut this out on their own is so great that they just can't hear it and can't go there. But give it a little time, and the, the, you know the spirit speaks, and it's it's beautiful to see people open up. And when I have my way, and fortunately this on this weekend I had my way. I always like to to have at least as much sharing time where these guys are in small groups, safe settings. I want them to be able, I want to have at least as much time as they've had with me to talk to each other. And uh, this weekend, this particular weekend went, went great and the pastoral staff was there in force and they were ecstatic because, uh, you know, we'd give the guys an hour to talk and they'd talk for two hours and they were saying things they'd never said before and, and uh, you know, fellowship was emerging and guys were coming up and talking to me and thanking me for what I was saying and some of them telling me their own stories and, one guy told me a story which cracked me up. It sounds apocryphal, but he, he said it was true. He said that um, years ago when his boys were young, he took them to a karate demonstration with some Asian sensei guy. And the guy did some amazing things, breaking blocks of wood and concrete blocks and some other stuff. And then afterwards, he took questions from the, the kids. And, and he said, the, la the, the questions all kind of followed a general theme. You know, if you're in a dark alley and somebody comes at you with a knife, what do you do? If you're in a dark alley and somebody comes with you, at you with a gun, what do you do? And finally, after three or four of these questions, the sensei stopped and said, why you go in dark alley? <laughs> Stay out dark alley. <laughs> And he said that became kind of a saying in their family. Stay out, dark alley. Right. So it's great. Well, the fourth session I had with these guys right before I was set to drive back here, 
I, I try to end with a Q&A session just so that we catch the stragglers. And if I've sent somebody deep in the weeds, you know, we can at least know it. And so we open it up for questions. Now, throughout this time, I've noticed that there's one guy who's especially reserved. He's an older fellow, very distinguished, spends a lot of time with his head down. I'm not sure what's going on there, right? We open up for questions, and his is the first hand to go up. And he, and he pulls out his Bible, and it's a big, impressive, you know, preacher Bible. It's a mon and it's, you can tell it's well used. And he says, do you believe that this is the word of God? And right then I knew we were in some trouble, right? Yes, I believe that's the word of God. And then he flipped to some passages that he obviously knew by heart about uh, the sexually immoral about uh, forsaking sexual sin and God's wrath upon those who do not. And his voice just kind of quavering with anger. He said, I do not understand how you could have done the things that you were doing and call yourself a Christian. Christians do not do these things. Okay. Now, my first response was anger. You know, he was challenging me, and, you know, and the, and the Pharisee in me got angry at his Pharisaism, you know. And then I felt some compassion for the guy, because he was obviously in, in some pain and distress. And, and I felt some admiration for the guy, because it took courage to step up like that and challenge me, because I had the mic, he didn't. And some gratitude that he was actually um, stating that question that was probably in the minds of at least half the guys in the room. And also, I could hear, I could hear a very shaming tone in his question. And that tone, together with the words, uh, brought back so many <laughs> sermons from childhood. So many words from, from, uh, that I grew up with, and words that I heard and continued to tell myself through 20 years of active addiction. As I told you, I was raised in uh, the holiness tradition, and I'm, I'm grateful for my upbringing, grateful for my parents, grateful that I have been, you know, that I, that I became a Christian there and learned a great many great things there. But uh, I, I also picked up some stuff in that upbringing. We were very, very, very focused on holiness. Holiness, as I've told you before, defined by a long list of things that Christians do not do. And at the head of those lists, of that list, were sexual sins. Now, if you practiced any of the three G's, gossip, greed, or gluttony, uh, you got a pass. But we didn't focus on those at all, really. The Bible has a lot to say about all three, but in our circles, those were kind of the invisible sins. Even though you could eat yourself to death or work yourself to death or crucify others by your relentless use of the prayer chain, as long as you were not an obvious sinner 
in the way we define terms, then we regarded you as leadership material, right? And I always wanted to be leadership material, which meant that as soon as my behavior began to go in a sexual direction, I had to hide that behavior. Pretend, do as much uh, misdirection as I possibly could so that nobody would even suspect that Saint Nate would even entertain the thought of engaging in that behavior. And I was very successful in that strategy. Um, now, we believed that we had an advantage in the battle against sin because we were Pentecostals. Later on, we became charismatics. It was just a step up the social ladder. But before that, we were Pentecostals. And we had something that Presbyterians, for example, did not have. We had the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and, um, you know, the first Bible verse that we learned was Acts 1.8. You shall have power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will have, be witnesses for me both in Jerusalem and Judea and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And so in our theology, which by the way is not without biblical foundation, in our theology there, was an, there is an experience available to, the, to the believer subsequent to salvation in which we are baptized by the Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And when that happens, we are imbued with power. Power to witness, and then here's the biggie. Power over sin. We receive the power not to sin anymore. After that, there's really no excuse. Which, if you buy the theology, when you recognize your sin, puts you in great distress. You can't possibly be a Christian. Now, one way out of that is just to categorize your behavior, recategorize it out of sin, right? And that's easy to do if you are engaging in something that the Bible may condemn, but it's socially approved. All you have to do is just read the Bible with one eye closed. Just kind of squint and look at it from one angle. And when you do that, you can imagine that, um, as, as I'm sure my brother last weekend who posed that question had done, I, I'm sure I've done on many occasions, here's what happens when we do that. Because we want a certainty of our own, we find a way to read the Bible in a way that makes it seamless, that makes it uh, completely consistent, and logically airtight so that on that understanding we can construct a faith that is seamless and fully consistent and logically airtight and we can put our faith in that system we can construct a tower a theological tower and from the safety of that tower we can launch we can do the most horrendous things if when we look at the Bible if we do not pay attention to metaphor and mystery to story, if we ignore historical context, then we can find ourselves doing things like, for example, excommunicating and persecuting anyone who studies the world around us and concludes that the earth is round and revolves around the sun, when the Bible plainly says otherwise. We can defend human slavery on biblical grounds 
which, by the way, a great many people in this town were doing not so long ago. And had we lived here then, we may very well have done the same. And we can condemn all addicts as weak-willed and immoral and consign them to hell. Um, I took my good brother. I didn't want to engage in a in a biblical pissing contest. There's just no way to win in those. But I, I did affirm to him my belief in scripture. Um, I did my best to be gentle. And then I took him where I'd like to take you, Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read what is probably a pretty familiar passage. I'm going to start reading in verse 9. Once I was alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, but what I hate. Okay, I'm sorry. In my mind, I still hear the King James, and I'm reading this from a more modern translation, and it just isn't right, but I'm going to go back to it. Okay. <laughs> I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no! The evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin that is at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. And then that great majestic verse, 
which in the original there were no chapter divisions. This was the next sentence that came out of Paul's pen. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, do you know how we got around that in holiness circles? We said this is what Paul wrote before he got saved. It was a flashback. This is just a flashback section in scripture. Now, there's no contextual evidence supporting that interpretation of the text. What I hear is blistering honesty, tremendous vulnerability, and I hear through it the song of the gospel. I hear Paul saying something to which I can echo. Me too. Now it's interesting. He says in verse 20, so then if I continue to do the thing I hate, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And then there's that phrase that he uses twice in the next three verses where he says that sin is in my members or in my body. It's in me now. What I challenged my brother to do that last weekend was, first of all, let's draw a distinction between sinners, rebellious sinners and repentant sinners. <laughs> rebellious sinners and reluctant sinners. Let's draw a distinction. Jesus certainly did. And at the same time, let's talk about addiction in different terms. And I shared with him that I battled with this. I was him, man, when I first got in recovery. I don't know that I've told you this. By the way, one of the drawbacks to all the teaching and talking I do is I forget what I said where. So if during the course of these 16 weeks you hear me repeat myself, it's not just that I'm getting older. It's that I'm busy and have a poor memory. So, but I don't think I've told you this. And I, I, I want to make sure that you hear it. So even if you hear it for a second time, this is it. OK. I remember being very, very angry when I first got in a 12-step meeting with people who kept talking about addiction as a disease, my addiction as a disease. And at one point, I, very early on, I, I had it out with my sponsor, who was a Christian. I said, this is, you know, this is too far. You know, it's bad enough that I can't mention the name of Jesus. We've got to talk about God in generic terms so that nobody gets offended. I mean, that's hard enough. But I'm very insulted that I can't call sin, sin. It all gets sloughed off as a disease. What I've been doing is an insult it's, it's a flagrant violation of the laws imposed by a holy God. It's sin. I could hear the echo of my father's voice in those words. Right? It's sin. And he was very gentle and he said, you know, you're right. I mean, this, we're talking about sin. But we're talking also about something more. He said, why don't you try thinking about addiction as a sickness caused by sin? I said, show it to me in the Bible. He said, okay, and he took me to Romans 7, the passage I just read. He took me to, to verse 20, 
So then, if I do the thing, continue to do the thing I hate, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And then those subsequent verses, it's in my members, it's in my body. It's in me now. I'm sick. Medical people who study addiction have taken to referring to addiction as a conditioned physical response. We now understand that it is possible for us to alter our brains and our bodies through action or even through thought. As I understand it, and this certainly squares with my own experience, addiction tends to develop, usually develops this way. At some point, I am either induced or coerced. If I'm a child, for example, and uh, sexually molested as a kid, I'm powerless. I have no choice over this. I'm going there. Or perhaps I'm just induced. I, you know, I, whatever. And I do something that I know isn't right. If there is any pleasure at all associated with that behavior, as I do it, Neural pathways are being formed in my brain. Chemical receptors are being conditioned throughout my body that are disposing me ever so slightly to repeat the behavior. Now, I'm still not doomed to repeat the behavior. I have some choice. But I'm more likely to now. Now, if I repeat the behavior, I go down that road again, more neural pathways are formed, and they're strengthened, and they're widened, and more chemical receptors throughout my body, not just in my brain, but through the whole empathic, neuroempathic system, are conditioned, disposing me ever so much more to repeat the behavior. If I continue down that path, at some point, I cross an invisible line. And when I do, suddenly, what began as a volitional activity has become automatic. I have lost the power of choice. I am not free to stop. Now, no matter what I do, even when I recognize that what I'm doing is harming those I love, even when I see that it's killing me, even when I promise and plan and, and pledge, when I tell God, when I tell everybody else that I'm going to stop, I cannot stop because I'm sick. What I came to understand was that I had spent years in active addiction begging God for a forgiveness that was already mine because I didn't believe the gospel. What I did not understand that what I needed, forgiveness was mine. What I needed was healing. Now, I only had one model for healing, that instantaneous zap, right, that we sometimes got in miracle services. I wanted that. Turns out that God is certainly capable of curing addiction instantly and occasionally does, but that is not his preferred method. He usually has a larger goal in mind. Does that mean that God is heartless? Does that mean that God doesn't care about healing? Of course not. If you want to see how much God cares about healing, just take a look at the healing processes that he has designed into the human body. The way a cut closes. The way a broken bone mends. 
the way the body will defeat an infection with a fever that spikes and subsides. Those are miracles. And they are progressive. I've come to believe that, um, that God has designed a similar healing process into the body of Christ. Describe for us in James chapter 516, our good friend James, that guy who Martin Luther couldn't stand. James, James 516, confess your sins to, you know the worst verse? One another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. Why do we confess our sins to one another? Why do we speak? Is it to get forgiveness? No. I don't need to confess to you to be forgiven. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's not about forgiveness. It's about healing. And healing comes about in relationship. I don't know if you remember those uh, uh, television commercials from the uh, Partnership for a Drug-Free America. They were out in the 70s and 80s. The rat in the cage. Remember those? Only one drug is so addictive that nine out of 10 laboratory rats who taste it will use it and use it and use it and use it until they die. That drug is cocaine. It will do the same to you. And it's true in experiments from the 50s on. Scientists saw that if they put a rat in a cage with two, wa two water bottles, one had just water in it, the other had water laced with morphine, that rat would hit that morphine over and over and over, day on day on day until he died. Now, here's something interesting. Described in an article in the journal Pharmacology, of 1980. A, uh, a researcher, a, a psychology professor at a university in Vancouver took a look at those experiments and wondered about something. He said, all those rats who are addicted are alone in a small bear cage. What would happen if they weren't alone? His name was Bruce Alexander, and he built what he called Rat Park, a 90-square-foot kind of Garden of Eden for rats, with colored balls and tunnels and great food and lots of company, 12 to 16 rats in each rat park. And then he set up the same bottles. You know what he found? Drug use in Rat Park was 90% less than drug use on those isolated rats in bear cages. Well, later on, he wondered, you know, what if I take the addicted rats? So he took rats, put them in for 57 days alone when they're just at the brink of, 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 of being gone, then put them in Rat Park. Guess what he found out? They had some physical withdrawal. But none of them died. And all of them, their consumption of the morphine water 
dropped until it was, in most cases, down uh, equal with the others. Now, uh, those studies are uh, controversial, and they have not been fully replicated. I don't know how much uh, stock to put in them. Uh, Bruce Alexander preaches them heavily, and he's getting a lot of uh, play among people who oppose the war on drugs, who say that it's drugs that cause addiction, and if we just, here, here's the point he makes. He says, if we, could if we could combat addiction effectively, as we have been doing, if we could destroy it by outlawing all drugs, and then arresting, punishing, isolating, and stigmatizing every user, well, by now that should work. But it hasn't worked. We've got the highest rate of incarceration of any nation in the world. Drug addiction has not declined, it's grown. And I'm convinced that what we're doing really in the civil realm and in the criminal realm, we all too often do as well in the church. If you're struggling with something, well then you better struggle alone. You better struggle alone. I spent 20 years in a wire cage that nobody knew existed, just me. trying to stay away from that bottle. And I couldn't. It only became possible for me to stay away from that bottle when I was willing to leave the cage. When I was willing to face the fact that alone in that cage, I was powerless over that bottle. I was going to continue to do it until I died. The only, only hope was to admit that dilemma, get out of that cage, and find a safe place with other people. That's where healing was going to come. That's a humiliating, hard thing to do, especially if, if you've kept the cage secret all those years. To admit that the cage even exists is terrifying. You may remember Keith Miller. Uh, back in the 70s, 70s and 80s, he, he wrote a string of inspirational books, very popular speaker. One title, Taste of New Wine, sold over a million copies. He fell out of favor uh, in the mid-80s after his wife filed for divorce. Then people didn't want him around anymore. Uh, he got into recovery, and um, five, uh, after five years of recovery, 1991, he came out with this book, which many still consider a classic in the field, it's required reading in a lot of Christian 12-step circles, called Hunger for Healing, the 12 Steps as a Classic Model for Christian Spiritual Growth. Now Keith was one of those guys who was squeaky clean, who did not engage in the dirty addictions, anything that would have busted us, right? His big deal was control, control. Not just control of himself, but control of other people. And so he talks in the opening uh, chapter of his book and on step one, this admission of powerlessness. He talks about kind of how this militates against it among people who've managed in their own minds to keep their behavior between the lines. He said, our denial, which hides our controlling ways from us, leads us to blame others for our unhappiness and to criticize them. And frequently, that's our escape, our way of not facing the things inside us 
that lead to our unhappiness and our way of avoiding the awareness that we may be powerless to fix everyone and be happy. Because we still seem to be in control. After all, it's their fault they left. Maybe I can still think of a way to get them to change. How can we admit that we are powerless and that our lives have become unmanageable? How can we, who are holding jobs and paying bills and raising children and looking adequate according to the standards of society, honestly admit to powerlessness when we appear to be living our lives satisfactorily? Later on he writes this, as we move through life we begin to take pride in those things that seem to reflect our success. We say that we're proud of our wives, our husbands, our children, our homes, our cars, our friends, our church. And we look at all these people and things and assure ourselves that we are in fact in control, that we are happy, that we have power, that we are complete. I'm not saying that it's wrong to enjoy these things or to be satisfied with them, but when we are not happy unless things are going well, meaning the way we want them to, and with all, and with all these people, things, and institutions, we are using control of these outward things as evidence of our worth as a person. It is essential, therefore, that we stay in control of our lives and the lives of others around us in order to have a sense of value and in order to be happy. We tend to hide any evidence of weak or selfish behavior that might reveal a lack of power or reveal that our motives for advising the family are in fact very self-serving. Stay out, Doc Alley! <laughs> you know, that isn't what I wanted to hear when I came into recovery. I, I got into recovery to learn karate, right? I, I got into recovery so that I could learn how to be who I always wanted to be. You know, supernate. That's what I wanted. More powerful than a locomotive. Faster than a speeding bullet. Able to leave, leap, you know, tall temptations with a single bound. Eventually, you know, I remembered that Superman did have kryptonite. You know, that one thing over which he was powerless, and I decided for a time that lust is my kryptonite. Okay, I'm powerless over lust. What I came to understand is that the list of things that I am powerless over is very long. And the list of things over which I do have some power is very, very short. And in fact, I used lust for years as a way to medicate the frustration and the pain and the anger that was produced by my inability to control people, places, things and even emotions that I told myself and was convinced I should be able to control. There is a peace that comes when we finally, and it usually comes only at the point of crisis, some earth-shattering event, some colossal failure that fractures our sense of invincibility and, and power. There's that window when when we have a chance to admit that we're human, that we're limited, that we're vulnerable, that alone we can never do it. 
There is a, that we have an opportunity to come out of the darkness and, as John says, walk in the light as he is in the light and there have fellowship with one another. As we do that, as we admit and accept our powerlessness, quit deluding ourselves, quit trying to control what we cannot control, there is a peace that comes. And it's only that surrender that makes it possible for us to allow the work in our lives by a power greater than ourselves. Get out of the way so God can do what we can't. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Walking Lessons Podcast. We want to hear from you. Please email your comment or question about today's lesson to walkinglessons at gmail.com or join the Walking Lessons page on Facebook. We'll see you next week.